Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me on State of the Art Podcast. I'm your guest host, Michelle Hartney. For those of you who are confused, State of the Art decided to expand their niche beyond art and tech to include a variety of topics which have shaped the state of art as we know it today. With this in mind, I've been invited to take the podcast over for a month-long discussion exploring art and morality. This topic could take us into so many different directions. We're going to narrow it down and focus on gender and racism in the art world. In this episode, we speak with one of the founding members of the Guerrilla Girls about racism and sexism in the art world at an institutional level. The Guerrilla Girls are a collective of feminist activist artists who use facts, humor, and visuals to expose gender and ethnic bias as well as corruption in politics, art, film, and pop culture. They often enact interventions and exhibitions at museums all around the world, blasting them on their own walls for their bad behavior and discriminatory practices. The Gorilla Girls have been together since 1985, and on a personal note, these women are my heroes and have inspired me and given me hope in so many ways Um, and have informed a lot of my own art practice. So I'm going to try my best to keep it cool and not fangirl too much. And one more note, I studied art history in college and I did not learn about the Gorilla Girls. So, um, which isn't surprising. Um, The Gorilla Girls remain anonymous by wearing gorilla masks during their actions and interviews and take on pseudonyms always using the names of female artists. So today we will be speaking to Frida Kahlo. Frida, welcome to State of the Art Podcast. Great, great to be here. And I have a question to ask about your college uh, art education. You didn't study the Guerrilla Girls? No, I mean, on my own I did, but I did not have a single professor talk about the Guerrilla Girls. Um, I, let's see, I went to school in the late 90s, um, so I feel like I should have learned about your work by then. Um, I also had all male art history professors, so I did not learn about your amazing work. Well, that, it, yeah, it's, um, everybody thinks that feminism is a woman's problem to solve, when in fact, we need guys to help us out. Absolutely. I would love to start by having you talk about how the Guerrilla Girls initially formed. Well, um, in 1984, the Museum of Modern Art uh, opened after a, you know one of their extravagant renovations with a show that they entitled An International Survey of Painting and Sculpture. Uh, and the show had uh, a little fewer than uh, 200 artists. And... Uh, I noticed, along with uh, a good friend of mine who has since taken the pseudonym Katja Kolwitz, we noticed that there were only 17 women artists in the show, and even fewer artists of color. And we sort of said, how can this be an international survey of painting and sculpture with so many white guys? So um, we went to a, a kind of ad hoc protest that the Women's Cox for Art was organizing in front of the museum. And everyone was there with like placards and 
uh, picket signs and chants, and they were walking in front of the back and forth in front of the entry uh, to the museum. And we spent, you know, a good afternoon there. Uh, and and we didn't achieve anything by the end of the day, except that we made a lot of people going in and out of the museum really angry. So it occurred to us that. Um, People who go to museums, at least at that point, really believed that the art world was a meritocracy and whatever art the museum filtered out in an exhibition had to be, you know, the most significant art that was being made at the time. And we knew that that wasn't true, that you can't have an international survey of painting and sculpture with primarily white male (laughs) artists. So we decided that very day that we would figure out some unforgettable way to wake up the art world. So um, we scheduled um, a meeting with a bunch of friends of ours who we thought, you know, were kindred spirits. Uh, Kat and I came with a couple poster ideas, um, one that attacked um, our fellow artists for male artists for allowing their work to be shown in galleries that don't show women artists. And then the converse of that, we did a poster about the galleries that we, that they showed in, uh, claiming that they showed fewer than 10% women artists or none at all. We took up a collection and we put the posters up. Um, and overnight, um, we sort of ignited a discourse. We did it because we were angry. Um, and of course, we did have a strategy. But um, one thing led to another. And you realize that um, there was a hunger out there for this kind of message that we were that we were formulating. So we would hang out near the posters during the day, listen to what people had to say, and then we'd go home and like strategize about the next poster. So it just started that way. Uh, we didn't plan that it would be a thirty-five, almost thirty-five year um, project, uh, and it's been a really exciting ride. And it's been really interesting to figure out how to message. Um, criticism of the art world in a way that it's um, understood. So can you give us uh, some perspective in regards to the improvements that have been made in the art world in the past three decades since your collective did form? Well, I think the good news is that the consciousness of, uh, of the art world has changed. And whereas in 1985, there were curators and critics who were saying, well, you know, if uh, there, um, you know, if women artists and artists of color are not in these major exhibitions, it's because, well, their work just is not good enough. No one would say that anymore. No one. However, if you look at the, you know, at the, uh, at the roster of, um, you know, of solo shows, and if you look at auction results, and if you look at, at galleries, um, the economy of the art world has not gotten that much better for women and artists of color. They've, of course, allowed in a few tokens, and we know that token, tokenism is is not really a solution to the problem of exclusion. It's sort of an extension of it. So I would say that um, there's no going back on the idea that that you could possibly write the history of art without women and artists of color. There's no going back on that. However, will women artists and artists of color um, have equal access to uh, resources and and income and, you know, the sources of production? I don't know. So I'm interested in the work that curators and art historians are doing right now to find artwork that was made in the past few centuries that we never saw 
because it was made by a woman or an artist of color or an artist from the LGBT community. Do you have any idea um, what this process of searching looks like? I mean, where does one begin to find these artworks that may be hidden in a relative's basement somewhere? Well, I, I think that the challenge is to ask questions that haven't been answered and then try to find the answers. Um, when we wrote our Bedside Companion to the History of Western Art, you know, we started out with um, that question, why have there been no great women artists? And we started looking around and we realized there have always been great women artists. It's just a question of who filters them. Uh, and we realized that throughout all periods of art history, even though incredible obstacles were set up to keep women and people of color out of the art making process in every every generation, every decade, every century, there have been incredibly ingenious and courageous individuals who figured out ways to get around all those rules and have productive lives. Um, and even the ones who perhaps had uh, very active careers during their lifetime they, they in turn were forgotten by, you know, by the late 19th century and early 20th century art historians who really defined um, Western art as a male activity. So I think it's a wonderful, like, mystery to go back and discover, you know, what was done, what has been forgotten, what is essential to our understanding um, of how art and culture have evolved. Um, so I would say just ask a question that you don't know an answer to and go out and try to find the answer. And, you know, we're not scholars. We did not really produce any original research in our book. We really were, you know, we're surfing on uh, research that we could already find, but we tried to put it into a context in a form that was um, really easy to understand and um, was not tedious and that, and that you wouldn't fall asleep reading and also that you might just want to read in the bathroom. <laughs> That's one of the um, things I love about um, the Gorilla Girls is, I mean, the art world can be difficult. It can be pretentious. And I like that you don't use art speak and you do make it um, easy for anyone to digest for sure. Um, well, say for those of us who might have had an academic education, it's been an unlearning experience to, you know, to learn how to message without using all of that kind of, um, you know, art speak or the priestly language of art, as I like to call it. Absolutely. Um, do you have any museums that are really doing a good job of showing a diverse collection? Well, I think the problem of museums is um, the problems of museums have a lot to do with their funding. And um, I, I'm giving you a very convoluted answer to this. Um, in Europe, museums oftentimes were, you know, evolved or devolved or however you want to say it from um, royal collections and they became public. Um, in the United States, art museums have, have always been uh, the result mostly of philanthropy of wealthy uh, individuals who made a lot of money, probably felt guilty about it and wanted to, wanted to sort of make some very showy uh, give back. So American museums, and oftentimes those those uh, robber barons who, who made museums, were also art collectors. So what's evolved in the United States is a system of museums that serve collecting. And many of the trustees of museums are art collectors. 
um, which, you know, from the vantage point of any other profession would be a real conflict of interest, um, you know, to have art collectors serve on the boards of museums that in turn have the, uh, have the power to um, um, make their investments appreciated and valued. That's a, a real problem. It's getting worse. And there's also this sort of development of many, many private museums where, um, you know, art collectors, uh, for a lot of tax reasons, um, you know, will start a private museum so that they can run the whole show. So they get all these tax benefits and they appear to be, you know, really generous, uh, public-minded people. But if you scratch the surface, you realize there's a lot of self-interest there. And I think that is the crisis of philanthropy in the United States right now, is that philanthropy oftentimes does not solve any problems at all. They just continue the, the power structure and the status quo while giving it a kind of candy coating. Um, you know, Europe is a little bit, a little bit different, but trending uh, towards the American model. So uh, I would say things are better in Europe right now, which goes against uh, one of our earliest paint, uh, posters that said it's even worse in Europe because in 1995 or 1985, that was the truth. You know, European museums were just totally obsessed with the idea of the white male genius. Um, and that's been, that's been cracked a little bit. And European museums, because many of them are publicly funded, have have a real responsibility to their public. Um, where I think in the United States, uh, museums will say they have a responsibility to their public, but if you really look behind the scenes, they have a responsibility to their donors. Um, and that is a real problem. And I, I think what it does is it, it gives the art world, uh, especially museums, a layer of corruption. And we certainly see that in all of the um, recent... Um, um, protests, uh, for example, at um, at the Whitney over Warren Kander's, you, uh, you know, a board member who who is a war profiteer, and uh, every time you see, um, you know, in a protest that rubber bullets and tear gas have been used, you can probably guess they came right from Warren Kander's, who then sort of art washes his career by being, you know, an art uh, collector and the trustee of the museum. That also was an issue at uh, the Brooklyn Museum with the Sacklers, correct? Yes, but I think the Sacklers uh, at the Brooklyn Museum um, uh, are not the same Sacklers who are actually being prosecuted. No, oh, really? A different branch of the family, yeah. That yeah. makes me feel better because the dinner party is there and... <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's very complicated. Uh, you know, yeah. when, you know, when the Sackler family became culpable for selling addictive drugs, but uh, the, the branch of the family that's now uh, under criminal, um, you know, criminal watch uh, is a different uh, branch of the same family. But yes, uh, and, and kudos to Nan Golden for, uh, for really going after that and giving it, you know, everything and being really ingenious about uh, about messaging um, that that issue and actually getting the museums to refuse Sackler money. I'd love to talk to you about the Me Too movement. Um, while there's still so much work to be done, we are in a different place than we were back in the 80s when the Gorilla Girls formed. Um, I'd love your thoughts on the Me Too movement and how that has affected the collective's work? Well, uh, if you look back in some of our early work, we did a couple of posters about uh, Carl Andre and O.J. Simpson, comparing them. 
Um, we did a poster about rape and um, uh, the trial of um, uh, one of the Kennedy family members who was accused of rape. Uh, so we've been thinking about this since the 80s. And um, anyone who went to art school, <laughs> you know, before, uh, you know, before the Me Too movement, knows how prevalent it, it was to have male, uh, you know, faculty members hitting on their female students. And while the students themselves were probably, the female students were flattered to have that attention, um, it was it was really a form, uh, an abuse of power and uh, um, a form of sexual predation. Uh, I think that now things have really changed. Uh, and it's, uh, since the art world is such a chummy little place where everyone scratches everyone else's hand, um, it's a little hard to come out and accuse people, but it's starting to happen. And um, I know there are probably a lot of faculty members at art schools who are sitting very gingerly on their, you know, on their uh, studio stools, you know, wondering when, you know, when the ball's going to drop. Um, and uh, it's very courageous, uh, you know, for, for uh, female artists and art students to come out because it does make their career more difficult, uh, just as being a feminist at a certain point uh, made it very hard for women artists to get ahead because feminists were always thought of as, you know, being male-hating and being difficult and, um, you know, being, uh, you know, being whiners. I remember Mary Boone, who has gotten her just, you know, rewards, said that the Guerrilla Girls were an, uh, an excuse for failure. And that, um, you know, any woman who was a good artist, you know, uh, you know, who sort of played the game correctly would make it. Um, anyway, I think we all know that that's, you know, that's not true, that there are so many filters and there are so many, um, you know, implicit, um, you know, values that no one really challenges in the art world and all kinds of internalized bias that an unconscious bias that, uh, we all have to investigate and be able to talk about and confront. Well, I'd like to speak a little bit more about abuse of power. Separating the art from the artists is such a hot topic right now after men like Louis C.K. and R. Kelly and Woody Allen and Chuck Close. I'll stop there because I could keep going on and on and on. Um, these men are finally being called out for their awful behavior. What do we do with these men? Do you think they should just disappear forever? Um, I think a lot of people don't know what to do now that these men have been called out. Well, um, I think we should just talk about it. Of course, they've been called out. It's part of history. And maybe it needs to be incorporated in the writing of history of their work. Um, and... I mean, biography is uh, a really important part of how you understand anything, how you understand literature, how you understand politics. Um, you know, the way uh, artists live their lives is extremely, um, you know, uh, telling. So let's just talk about it. You know, let's just talk about it. When we get to Chuck Close, let's, you know, let's uh, let's mention that he, uh, you know, he engaged in predatory sexual behavior with students. And um, we actually did uh, a poster about that because we realized that museums have a 
big problem um, when they show clock chose Chuck Close's work. So we have some solutions. Could I read the poster to you? Yes, please do. Okay. Uh, imagine, and, and you can probably find, you can find this poster on our website. It's a big red rectangle and the headline is three ways to write a museum wall label when the artist is a sexual predator. And there are three choices here. Um, and this was based on an experiment the National Gallery of Art uh, to see the uh, Obama portrait the day that it was um, unveiled. And she noticed that there was a portrait of Bill Clinton there. And she noticed that the portrait of Bill Clinton was painted by Chuck Close. So this is uh, how the rest of the poster goes. Three ways to write a museum wall label when the artist is a sexual predator. Here's an example for museums afraid of alienating billionaire trustees and collectors who donated the artist's work. Chuck Close, American, born 1940, Monroe, Ohio. Portrait of President Bill Clinton, 1992. Chuck Close is one of the most important artists of his generation and the creator of a new kind of portraiture consisting of patterns of color. Option number two for museums conflicted about disclosing an artist's abuse next to his art. Chuck Close, American, born 1940, Monroe, Ohio, portrait of President Bill Clinton, 1992. Chuck Close is one of the most important artists of his generation and the, curate, the creator of a new kind of portraiture consisting of patterns of color. Like many artists, he has had a few disgruntled employees and models. Finally, for museums who need the help from the Gorilla Girls. Chuck Close, American, born 1940, Monroe, Ohio, portrait of Bill Clinton, 1992. Chuck Close has had a huge career with prices to match. He's been accused of sexually abusing models and students he picks up at fancy art schools. How fitting and ironic that he <clears throat> painted the official portrait of Bill Clinton. The art world tolerates abuse because it believes art is above it all and rules don't apply to genius white male artists. Wrong. That's an amazing piece. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, we've, we've been showing this at, uh, you know, in every uh, opportunity we can. And right now it's in a, uh, a very funny suite of posters that we, we were asked to put into a, an exhibition at Phillips, uh, uh, Phillips uh, Auction House and Gallery um, uh, that's entirely a show of one artists organized by Arnold Lehman, who was the former director of the Brooklyn Museum. Uh, and we decided that it would be part of a whole suite of uh, nine posters that all directly uh, criticize, um, criticize the role of, um, of sexual predators and also um, collectors and museums um, and billionaire art collectors in, you know, in creating a kind of corrupt system uh, in the art world. Um, and it was fun to do. And it, I, we were surprised that uh, they actually accepted the suite. Uh, and it's right at the beginning of the show. So it's an introduction to, a, you know, a wonderful, um, you know, a wonderful show, an exhibition of work by women artists that really deserve to be seen and also deserve to be supported. So 
contextualizing artwork that's shown in museums is one way of dealing with male artists who are guilty of treating women horribly, but there has been criticism against this. Uh, one of the reasons being because it takes away from the viewer's pure aesthetic relationship to the art. Um, what do you think of this defense against <laughs> contextualizing? Not, you know, not much. I mean, formalism, uh, you know, we still have a hangover of formalism that says that the only thing that really matters is the work of art out of, out of its context. It stands on its own. Well, it's really hard to understand any kind of art. Look at, you know, Renaissance art and, and particularly early Christian art. There's no way to understand it without understanding the context in which it was made. So, uh, I think that that's really a, a very weak and, uh, a very uninformed, uh, opinion. You always have to know where art sits. Um, you know, it, it's, it's never above this, the circumstances in which it was um, made. And also those circumstances are super, super interesting. And to know the way an artist behaved uh, is, you know, really another aspect of his or her work. I mean, we all want to know about Caravaggio's secret life, don't we? Or Leonardo's secret life. No one has said that we shouldn't talk about that. We only need to look at the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> So last year, Hannah Gadsby, a comedian from Tasmania, made waves with her incredible Netflix special, Nanette. For our listeners who may not have seen it, Hannah focused her special on homophobia, sexism, abuse, and rape. She also happens to have studied art history, and she spent some time talking about Picasso, who is probably one of the worst offenders in 20th century in terms of his treatment of women. Picasso said, quote, each time I leave a woman, I should burn her. Destroy the woman, you destroy the past she represents. So Picasso is a little different because he is probably on the highest pedestal when it comes to white male artists in the art world, and people are very protective about him and the narrative that will uh, forever go along with him. So what do we do about Picasso? Because I feel he's a little bit different, um, at least, and not in my view, but in other people's, people's views. So what are your thoughts on how we deal with him? Well, let's just tell the story of his life. It's so fascinating. And, um, you know, see what that does to our understanding of his work. Um, it's really interesting that modernism was so based, um, in a way, on the primacy of European culture, and we know that European culture was sort of based on, you know, the importance of colonialism, which was all about, you know, male dominance over white male dominance over everything that they thought was below them. And, um, you know, even though Picasso did have an interesting political life as, a, you know, as a, as a collectivist and a, a communist, um, he was not immune from the incredible machismo that came along with being a white male European artist, an early modern, you know, an early modernist. So I think he was a, um, he was also a victim of his own time, although he, you know, he became a victimizer, um, you know, as well. But I think it's interesting to consider him in that, in that light. Um, you know, everyone wants to think that art is somehow, you know, above the circumstances it was, um, uh, you know, made in. But I think we need to look at the times as well. And I think that, for example, this is a totally wild and crazy jump for me, but 
for, or for all of us. Uh, you know, Trumpism is, <laughs> we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, it is the epitome of a certain kind of uh, colonial machismo. Um, and all the elements of Trumpism have been alive and well in the art world for a long time. This idea that all the profit goes to the top, all the exploitation at the bottom, not very much in between, um, and tax evasion, money laundering, smuggling, conflicts of interest. Um, it, that's all gone on in the art world for a long, long time. And people have just considered it just part of the system and that the art was somehow so important and above it all um, that the art world was above scrutiny. And that's not true. Uh, and it's time for us to look very carefully at the system that filters art, that values art, that passes it on. And has it become an instrument of capitalism and investment and something that's really about uh, income inequality from the get-go? And when artists, um, you know, market their work to billionaires and millionaires, what does that make, you know, what does that mean? Um what about some cheap art? What about art that, you know, everyone can own? You know, what about art that we all have access to, like music, like film, like books? Uh, why is it that the visual arts has really become another version of the Fabergé eggs uh, where, uh, you know, they're, they're scarce and they're very expensive and only the wealthiest, most I think that that's, um, you know, that is corruption. That is, uh, and it's, it's, it doesn't suit the democratic age that we would like to think that we're in, and especially the sort of, uh, you know, liberal, progressive environment that the art world would like to think that it is. Uh, you know, when all the money comes from billionaires, um, you know, that really undermines, uh, you know, the idea of, of being progressive or liberal. I'm going to read one of my favorite Ruth Bader Ginsburg quotes. She says, when I'm sometimes asked, when will there be enough women on the Supreme Court? And I say, when there are nine, people are shocked. But there had been nine men and nobody's ever raised a question about that. One of my fantasies is that art museums in the U.S. and Europe take a few years and only show women artists and artists of color and artists from the LGBT community and just put men on hold for a while white men to make up for all of the art that we missed because they hijacked the walls of museums. Um, is this a fantasy of mine too extreme, do you think? Well, I have to say we had the very same fantasy as well, and you'll find it on one of our early works. We, um, at a certain point, we decided that we would, um, we would make it try to make negotiate with the art world in a kind of conceptual way. Uh, and when, what would make us go away? And we listed all the reasons, um, uh, for which we would retire. And one of them was, you know, museums showed nothing but women and artists of color for five years. <laughs> so I think we're on the same, same wavelength there. Got no argument from us. <laughs> I love that. Um, the Baltimore art museum recently sold seven works of art that happened to be created by white male artists to establish a fund so the museum could acquire art by women and artists of color. This move was controversial, of course. Um, do you think this is a version of censorship that would we would be essentially censoring the art made by white men? Why? 
I mean, the art still exists. It'll go on. Uh, it'll go on to be in some incredibly important collection. Uh, and the artist, the value of the artist's uh, work will go up. And uh, probably as they are, you know, functioning in the capitalist art market, it'll, it'll be good for them. Um, I don't know. You know, we're complainers. We're not really policymakers. And um I think there are many, many way, different ways to uh, to reform the system, and I I think that um, you know that just might be one of them. I'd like to talk a little bit about Balthus. About a year and a half ago, a petition was created to either contextualize or remove a painting by Balthus that was showing at the Met in New York. Just to give a little background for people, Balthus is a European artist who is known for his paintings that often depict young girls in very a very sexualized manner, sometimes showing them with their legs spread and their underwear showing. The Met refused to respond to this petition. Uh, what would have been an appropriate response that would have pleased the Gorilla Girls? Ooh, that's a really good uh, uh, question, and I think you might find um, you might find different answers from our different members. You know, we don't have a single you know group speak speak uh, or group think. Um, I think it's really important to talk about it. Uh, I really am not against. Uh, I'm not for censoring work. Um, you know, Balthus is part of the history of modern art. It's certainly part of the history of the Met Museum. They have supported his work for a long time. So uh, I think having their curators explain publicly why that work is important, why they collected it, whether they think it's problematic now, and if they don't think it's problematic now, they should explain why. I think the dialogue that goes on about these things uh, is uh, as important as, um, as anything else. So later in life, Balthus took almost 2,000 Polaroids of an eight-year-old girl named Anna. He photographed her once a week for eight years, instructing her to lie in highly sexualized positions, sometimes only wearing underpants with her legs spread wide open, her arms behind her back. She often appeared as if she were sleeping. In 2013, Gagosian Gallery exhibited 155 of these Polaroids, selling them for $20,000 each. So this is where I see a division. An artist can paint whatever they want. No matter how disturbing the subject matter is, we have to allow that to happen because censorship is just not an option. But these Polaroids, which Balthus never intended to show the public, it, they feel different to me. Um, there, there are certain pieces of art that border on criminal acts. So let's say there's this guy living in his parents' basement and he had an eight-year-old girl coming into his house once a week for eight years, taking topless photos of her in sexual positions, he'd probably be considered a pedophile. Balthus was probably saved from this label because he was a genius male artist who was placed way too high on a pedestal by the art world, so he was completely untouchable. But what do you think we should do with the Polaroids? Um, or with work that is walking the line between art and a criminal action? Well, I mean, there are, 
you know, kitty porn laws. And it would be really interesting to have a kind of mock trial of Balthus and have, uh, you know, um, public defenders and lawyers who are experts on this field present an argument, both for and against, and let's see how it, how it shakes down. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, you know, a painting, something that's painted is, is a, um, um, it's a fantasy, but a photograph, uh, especially a, a, a photograph that was not manipulated, that was, you know, a straight on photograph, that act existed. And I think that we need to talk about it. Uh, and we need to consider it. Uh, and uh, forgive me, is Balthus still alive? No, he's passed away. Oh, so well, I guess that that's, you know, that's the past, but uh, it would be interesting. And, and is the young girl still alive? She is. And uh, what has she said? Um, it's interesting because uh, for a project I'm working on, we, we tried to contact her and she didn't want to speak to us. Um, so um, she said, uh, she kind of had this mixed message when, when Gagosian put out uh, the Polaroids, there was a huge, uh, actually two books uh, of the Polaroids that they also put out, and there was an essay that Anna wrote. And it really kind of moved around between being okay with the with the work, but um, also feeling like perhaps her father forced her to do this a little bit. Um, so it kind of came off as mixed feelings, which is understandable because... When you are um, the spotlight of a super famous, a famous person, I could see how that really, that abuse of power comes into play. Well, I think, yeah, it, it needs to be talked about and she needs to be encouraged in whatever way uh, is comfortable for her to be able to talk about it and to think about it. We need to talk about it. We need to create a dialogue and a discussion about this. And, um, I think Gagosian needs to explain too. Absolutely. Did he have anything to say about it? No, it's really, it's so, I mean, it's not surprising, but the presentation and, and the narrative behind that exhibition was, was really just, it was, it was just licking the asshole about this. There was no discussion really of, um, of the content and that it's disturbing. It was just, it was really just in praise of the genius that Balthus was, in their opinion. Well, that's shocking. And uh, if he ever shows them again or sells them again, will you let us know? We're going to be there. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I hope he, he, someone tells him about this, uh, you know, this this podcast, so that he can be afraid. I'll send him a link. Very afraid. <laughs> Okay, I want to ask you a hypothetical question that someone asked me. I've actually been asked this a few times. So if we found out, let's say that Georgia O'Keefe was a serial killer or a child molester, would you have the same reaction um, as, you know, you have to these men that are doing horrible things? Probably. Sure. Probably. I think see um, it there. Oh, can you say that again? You got cut off a little. Oh, um, um, I would like to, you know, if Georgia O'Keefe had been 
a serial killer, I'd like to go back and look at her work and see if I can can see evidence of it. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so there's been a lot of talk lately about decolonizing art museums. And for viewers who might not be familiar with that term, decolonizing museums, for viewers who may not be familiar with this term, decolonizing museums is basically about overhauling the systems that museums have been operating under. And one of the ways museums are doing this is to engage with indigenous or marginalized people whose art and artifacts the museums exhibit. Um, well, they're trying to get their input regarding what's shown in their collections and how it's shown. Do you think this is a good way to um, go about decolonizing museums? Uh, well, it might not be the only way. It's it's one way. I think we do have to realize how um, art history, as we've been taught it, is the expression of colonial, you know, European colonialist history, and that there's a lot of other histories going on at the same time. And many of our museums, you know. Um, really are the repositories of the artifacts of colonialism. Um, and the Museum of Natural History in New York is, uh, you know, is a perfect example of that because it really is an art museum, you know, for objects from many, many, many cultures, but instead they're presented as sort of anthropological oddities. And um, we completely support the work of Decolonize This Place and, uh, you know, the demands that they've made and all of the activities that do they do, giving tours uh, to explain to people why this... Um, this institution called a museum that, you know, we have uh, admired for a long time, uh, you know, has been a vehicle for a certain kind of biased history. I mean, that's not to say that we should blow it, blow it up. I think, you know, wonderful, one of the greatest parts of a museum is would be if they can re rethink themselves and re um, reorganize themselves. And to do that, I really think that American art museums have to get away from their service to uh, American or, well, their service to art collectors. That's, I mean, okay. so that's so problematic that um, benefactors and art collectors have so much power uh, over museums that claim to be uh, uh, serving a public, uh, you know, a public function. Sure, sure. In 2016, Dana Schultz made a painting of Emmett Till's open casket in response to media coverage of police brutality against black men. Uh, Emmett Till was a black, sorry, Emmett Till was a black 14 year old boy who was lynched in 1955 in Mississippi by two white men after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store. His mother chose to have an open casket for the funeral to focus attention on the brutal racism against African Americans. So this painting was shown at the Whitney Biennial, and it caused a huge controversy. People were very divided about their feelings with how to deal with this piece. Many called for the piece to be taken down. Do you think this would have been a controversy if it had been exhibited at the Biennial prior to the election of Donald Trump? Um, I can't answer that. But this is one of those questions that if you spoke to different members of our group, you'd get very different answers. We were, uh, it, it, it sparked a real dialogue uh, among ourselves. 
Um, and I can only express my opinion, which is that I think that painting uh, by Dana Schultz was very naive. Uh, and it was very naive on her part um, as a white woman to uh, suffer, uh, you know, to focus on, you know, black suffering as a way to perhaps uh, cleanse herself. Um, I think that we have to think about who, who's telling whose story now. Uh, and um, I think that white people should sit back and, you know, listen to people of color and that people of color should speak up uh, in front of white people. Um, so I, I was not against, I, I was not for uh, destroying the painting. Uh, it would have been really, uh, well, it was naive of, of Danish shoots to paint the painting. It was naive of the curators to put it in a show. Um but it shouldn't, you know, I, 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 I'm totally against things being, uh, you know, art being destroyed. I mean, that's, uh, you know, we all know the road that that goes down. Um, so I think, again, it's a dialogue. Let's talk about it. And uh, the protests at the museum did create a discourse. Um, I don't know that the two sides were listening to each other or acknowledging that, that each side had, uh, had, you know, had a kind of, point of view uh and oftentimes it broke down on generational um you know on generational uh, uh considerations that uh, you know, younger artists thought that it was um uh, it, that the painting should be taken down and older artists said no let's let's leave it up let's talk about it i have one last question for you um out of all the actions that you've been a part of with the gorilla girls which one are you most proud of Oh gosh, it's usually just the last one we did. Uh, you know, I don't really think that way. I mean, I think that's, that's the sort of mainstream, uh, yeah, the idea of mainstream artwork, you know, who do you think was the, you know, the greatest artist of the 20th century? Well, I, I don't think that way. Every day I, uh, you know, I have a different idea about that. And I just want to say something, you know, I think that kind of thinking where you reduce, um, large cultural issues and considerations, uh, to a winner and a loser. Uh, is, 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 is a real problem with our culture. And perhaps it's something we get from, I don't know, all of the, um, all of the fallout from capitalism where, you know, there are winners and losers and profit, you know, the market, the market decides who wins and who loses. And, um, I, I just don't think that way every day. My thinking about stuff is different. I'm so. the same way. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that we missed that you really want to talk about? Well, um, um, do you think I've gone over, uh, you know, the corruption that we find in museums and how, you know, the museums replicate a kind of economic model of, you know, of late capitalism where, you know, where, you know, where uh, power and income is all, um, concentrated in a, a small number of people and, and in a small number of artists rather than uh, as the culture gets larger and larger, there should be more artists and, you know, more museums and, um, you know, more, you know, more winners and not fewer winners. Actually, what we discovered in the very, one of the very first exhibitions we ever did at the clock tower where we uh, examined the Whitney Biennial, we discovered, this is way back in like 1987, or 18, 1989, I, I keep getting those dates confused. We discovered that as uh, you know, the American art world was expanding, the Whitney Biennial was getting smaller 
and smaller. And we asked the question, you know, if things are getting bigger and bigger, why shouldn't there be more artists in the biennial? Why should there be less and less? So we started to see this process of, um, you know, of uh, the monetization of art and the, um, uh, the reduction of art to a few geniuses who win everything. It was at work then. Um, anything else that we might have missed that you want to talk about? Oh, God, I don't know. I didn't <laughs> want to put everything on your list. I think um, we did, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know, you might want to <laughs> – have you seen our um, – the Gorilla Girls um, uh, Art Activity mu- uh, art Museum Activity Book? Yes, because yes. It, Can you talk about that? It, oh, well, I wish I had it in front of me now. Oh, okay. I should have gotten it out. In it, there is – we have a uh, little section about how to write a wall label. And it's about looking at this portrait, a 19th century portrait of, I forget the woman's name. She was a kind of uh, uh, aristocrat in France and uh, how it sort of presented her as being some kind of a slut. Uh, but we rewrote it. Um, she was she was presented as being a libertine she married at the age of 14 and then she ran away from her husband and she had her own artistic salon in paris and then and then she uh got hooked up with Talleyrand or someone and the whole idea was that she was just morally depraved but we rewrote it from a feminist point of view uh, that she was an incredibly liberated woman, and anyone who gets married at the age of fourteen—that's you know, the beyond. You know, that's before the age of uh, you know of consent, and it was really you know her marriage was you know was a uh, uh, um, you know was a form of, of child abuse. Anyway, I, I suggest you go back and take a look at it. If you can't find it, I will send you a photo of it. Um, so the idea of museums like constantly examining themselves and seeing if their take on things, uh, you know, stands up to changes in time uh, is sort of important because too many people think that art never changes, then it's always the same. And, um, and, and that's sort of, that is a fantasy. Thank you all for joining us on State of the Art Podcast. You can learn more about the Gorilla Girls at their website, GorillaGrills.com, G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A-G-R-L-S. And you can also follow them on Instagram at GorillaGrills. Be sure, be sure to tune in next week. It's going to be an exciting episode. We will be talking about decolonizing museums with a few women from the Delaware Art Museum who are doing really amazing work. So be sure to tune in next week. <laughs>